Hello? Hello? It's all around us. Hey everybody, what's up? This is Ro. Greetings from a rain-deluged and flooded Detroit, Michigan. We have two kinds of days going on up here right now. We either have days where it rains a lot, or we have days where it doesn't rain. And then you got to run outside with the lawnmower and try to cut your grass, which is probably sopping wet and soaked from the rain, and hope that your lawnmower doesn't explode. All in this period of time, it's probably pretty humid. It sucks up here right now. To my friends out west who need the rain, we would give it to you if we could because this is horrible. Anyways, moving on. Our guest this week is Mortellus, and Mortellus is a very fascinating individual. They have written a book called Do I Have to Wear Black? Rituals, Customs, and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans. Let me give you a little bit of the bio from this person. Mortellus is a mortician, British traditional witch, and high priestess of the Coven of Leaves. She is a member of the National Funeral Director and Morticians Association and a necromancer, a mom... Uh, uh, a counselor uh, for for grieving, all kinds of stuff. This person, the schedule they have is just absolutely insane. And actually, when they were coming on the show, they had only had about four hours of sleep. We didn't know that before we jumped into it, but they were still like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going I'm to get through it. So we actually kept them on here longer than we wanted to. Mortella self-identifies with the they-them pronoun, which is a little weird um, conversationally and linguistically to wrap my head around. Uh, but what are the, the main reason why is Mortellus is a chimera, which means that in the development process of the womb, Mortellus was supposed to be a twin and at some point or another enveloped the other fetus or the other egg and found out about this when they were going to get tested for the um, COVID vaccine. They, you know, Mortellus was one of the people that was out there, one of the first people to get the vaccine to see how it works and all of these things. So it's pretty cool. It's their way of... Um, Paying, paying respect and tribute to the other person that's inside of them or the other person that was supposed to be, and now they are one individual. Anyways, in this show, uh, we are co-hosted by Shelly, who does a fantastic job of coming on here and just running the interview for the most part. Shelly, as everybody knows, is our resident living dead girl and bath bomb diva. Anything quote-unquote death positive um, we have on the show, I usually have my friend Shelly here, and they do a fantastic job. She is just She's just great at co-hosting these kinds of topics with me. And 
she comes out in spades in this show. So we don't go too much in the book about the actual customs and traditions of these kinds of funeral practices. But the idea behind this book, before we jump into the interview, is say you are a Norse pagan or a pagan of any kind, and your beliefs do not fall into the Christian stereotypical funerary customs. And what happens when you pass away and you leave this mortal coil, what is everybody that is close to you to do to be able to honor you respectfully and properly in death? So Mortellus wrote this book. Now, we don't cover a lot of that stuff in here, however, because a lot of that is in the back of the book and it's kind of textbooky and kind of dry. And the other thing is, is that this is something that I want the people to go out and buy the book to read. But we do talk a lot about necromancy, uh, thoughts and ideas of death, what happens to us when we die, where do we go? There's a section in here that talks about the different afterlives according to different various religions and practices. So I ask the question, of course, well, where do we go when we pass away? Do we go somewhere depending on what our beliefs are? Is there a spiritual switchboard on the other side where somebody says, oh, you're a Norse pagan, so you go here? Or you were that and you go there so we just kind of toss around theories and ideas and i felt it cool to talk about mortellus about this stuff because mortellus deals with this stuff so intimately um this is a person who was going through and getting their mortician's license and and doing these things while covid was in the heat of it and things were really bad in the hospitals mortellus was there on the front lines doing afterlife care you know uh she this is a person that was taking care of you know the bodies and and things that happened with covid so they've seen a lot and I do want to thank her before we go on the show. Even Yes, I know they, them. But I, I, I want to thank them for coming on here because Mortalis didn't really have any sleep, like four hours of sleep. And they still did the interview. And we tried not to keep Mortalis on here for very long, but we did. And apologies. But, hey, this is great. So uh, we're just going to jump into it. And I will see everybody at the other side, as I always say. Here we go. So this week we have Mortellus with us. Mortellus has written a fantastic book called Do I Have to Wear Black? And this is a rituals, customs, and funerary etiquette book. You are a practicing pagan. You are, you know what? I'm going to do this. This is going to be a lot easier because you wear a lot of hats. So why don't you give us your bio? Because it is vast arrayed in depth and deep. <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to skip over anything because you do so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let me just start there. But uh... You're right. I do wear a lot of hats. I think uh, my way of uh, rebelling against sort of an isolated upbringing was to just learn everything. Right. I just I love experiencing something new and and seeing sort of the the, the vastness of experiences the world has to offer. I, I'm, I'm like a pathfinder gnome. I'll, I'll experience bleaching if I'm not always learning something. So I love that description. <laughs> There's something for everyone to go look up. But uh, I'm a, a, a mortuary sciences graduate and have spent the last year and a half, two years volunteering uh, to do disaster mortuary care during the pandemic. So that's kind of the brunt of my life. And as a clergy person and third degree gardenerian Wiccan priestess, I do a lot of service in funerals and funerary work. It's been a huge part of my life for a very long time. And on top of that, I'm 
I'm an author. I'm I'm not a medium, but that is the thing I call myself on the internet because there's no better word. <laughs> and so, three kids, dog, spouse, three acres of trees in rural North Carolina. So that's that's kind of my life. Um, let me put up right off the bat. I want to thank you for your service for for what you're doing right now, and especially of time of COVID. Um. I'm sure that that is maddening or at least it's on an emotional level. It can be very hard to deal with. And I don't think that people that do what you do get enough credit for what they do, especially right now in this time of craziness. Um, so thank you very much for being somebody that goes out there and, and takes care of people in their, in their final time on this world, especially during COVID with, with everything that's going on, because you've got people for a while, they couldn't go to funerals. They couldn't be with their loved ones. They couldn't, um, you know, you're kind of like people that do what you do are kind of the unsung heroes behind the scenes here. And you're probably, I'm assuming, were in the hospitals when all of this stuff was going down really heavily as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people forget that uh, people in the funeral industry, death care workers, are, we are healthcare workers. We're trained to be surgeons in a lot of ways of speaking. We have to, we have to put the deceased back to rights so that their families can can have a comforting last experience with them. And, and that can be challenging. I've joked at times that the front line was kind of a circle, you know, us standing right behind doctors to catch whoever fell through. And it's been, uh, it has been tough. There's this certainly predates COVID, but uh, there's even a mental health issue that's associated with death care workers. It's uh, it's often called uh, funeral director's fatigue, but the, the correct term would be compassion fatigue because it's it's so emotionally exhausting to constantly hold yourself in a place of grief for, for other families. Yeah, because yeah. part of your job is to be that cushion for exactly. the family. Um, and a lot of times, like, when, when somebody passes away, they go, you have the service, you have the funeral, you, you do all the things that are associated with that. And you do your job, and then after the funeral is over, and the person, they, you know, they begin the process of moving on or whatever, and you're kind of forgotten about until you go to the next person, and then you go to the next person, you go to the next person. So that's that's why it's, it's for me it's important to say thank you for what you do. Um, so moving on, uh, I got to ask you, since you were so intimately involved with death, and you're around it all the time, you you work in it. Um, you are also a practicing necromancer, which is one of the things that we're going to talk about. Because um, as I stated earlier, I've, I, I know a few, but I have never been able to get a person on the show that is willing to talk about it in any way, any way, shape, or form as to what the practice is or what necromancy is or whatever. But um, because you deal so much with death, what, in your opinion, what is death? I know that you don't have the direct answer to this, but I'm sure you have theories about all of this stuff. So I'm curious as to where in your travels, what your ideal and what your theory of what death actually is. I mean, I, I think that I would describe death like any, any good scientist. Death is, death is a, an end to life. It's just that stopping point for breath and a heartbeat and brain activity. What is it in sort of an esoteric sense, a magical sense? It's that, loss of vitality, vitality being a, a portion of your soul that differentiates you from a deceased person. 
your last breath on this earth is always going to be an exhale and with it goes that vitality that that link between your physical body and the remaining pieces of your soul we forget i think a lot of times that for a lot of cultures over most of history the body is a defined and important part of the soul and it's its purpose is to give us a link to this material plane it it's something holding us here no different than a cell phone connecting you to the person on the other side once mm-hmm. that connection is lost they can never exist in that same form so once you you breathe out that last bit of vitality and you no longer have that connection to your body you you can't haunt this physical plane anymore in the same way you once did so that's that's death to me actually on that note i wanted to actually bring up something and thank you particularly for your book here that um, we're reading here, Do I Have to Wear Black, right? Rituals, Customs, and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans. One of the most beautiful things that I read was about the physics of existence. And, for example, the reality is that energy is energy. It cannot be destroyed nor created. And talking about all the photons and various things that about death and moving from one state to another. So I have actually never read nor experienced anyone else articulating that out loud, and that's been one of my greatest comforts in grief, is knowing about that. Uh, Could you elaborate a little more about what it meant to you when you were writing this chapter about death um, and its state? of what it is. I think that in any niche area, you know, what am what am I but I'm a pagan author, I'm a Wiccan author, I talk about paranormal things. Pick you know, pick your niche, right? When you have someone that's speaking to an area of specificity like that, there's always gonna be this group of people around you who've probably rehashed the same ideas a dozen times in a different, in a, you know, a dozen different books, but that's, that's easy to do in a lot of ways. And I don't mean it to sound divisive or, or dividing, but it, it's easy to rely on information that's in front of you and something you can cite and, and hold in your hands and put in your bibliography. And that's comforting as an author because who can question that, right? You got it from over here. But I think I think it was important to me above all else. Um, certainly, I, I wanted to be academic where I could and, and show where where I'm taking information from. That's that's also important. But it was important to me to let people know what what I think and what I feel and and share my own thought process because that's something you can't find in any other book. And I really do wish more nonfiction authors were comfortable doing that saying, sure, here's all the stuff I researched, but this is what I think. Yeah. I can't get that book, right? That's, that's precious because they shared it and it's vulnerable. And it's so scary because you're waiting for someone to go, you are an idiot. (laughs) You know what? I loved the foundation of not only science and and going into the physics, going into multiverse theory, 
but also incorporating uh, the the concepts of the different underworlds. So, like, for example, the Myths and Cycles chapter. One thing that I was talking to Ro about before we go into this um, was I really would like to understand, um, and do correct me if I'm wrong when I say this, catabasis, catabasis? Catabasis, yes. Um, okay. So I'd actually like to understand, and I think Ro has some questions about actual afterlife concepts, um, but I wanted to ask, as a necromancer, and all of these different descriptions of descent, or um, as we uh, as we are born, we are forever marching towards death. It is what it is. But it, it's it's a lot of these descriptions from Odysseus to Frankenstein, Dionysus, Odin. It's talking about an order or a, a cycle. So in that, I'd like to ask, how does that work with necromancy? Is that my layman's understanding would be that's breaking the cycle in some capacity, but it's definitely not something that I would say I have all the knowledge about, and I'd love to know from some from someone that practices. So just to sort of backpedal a little bit, if you liked reading science and physics turned magic in this book, you'll definitely like my next one because I, I delve into it quite a lot more, and I think some of those topics are sort of relevant to your question, but Fantastic. I think there's this misunderstanding about necromantic magic, and and really it it comes back around to the same stuff everything comes back around to, right? It's probably some like white Catholic guy from the 1500s ruining it, which is absolutely true. Yeah, that's absolutely what I would understand. So maybe we need to backtrack and ask, so, what is necromantic magic? So I, I try and stick pretty firmly to European necromancy, which is founded in Greek principles. Um, certainly, I take a little flavor from here and there because that's that's the beauty of sort of modern Reconstructionist paganism, right? You you get to choose from the buffet. But if we're looking at Greek practice, we're looking at people who, much like the death care workers of today, provided a community service you were probably preparing the dead in literal physical ways. You were doing magic for families to help them communicate with people, to help them connect with their dead in terms of protecting the family, remaining part of the family and so on, or removing the dead who were problematic. And that's probably a lot of my work is, is doing what I like to jokingly call social justice necromancy. I'm not a social justice warrior. I'm a social justice necromancer because, you know, if, if someone dies before uh, something makes it to trial, right? Some, some abusive asshole dies, but I can summon up their ghosts and say, guess what? You didn't get out of punishment. So haha. <laughs> so is necromancy not so much about the organic matter of the flesh as much as it is about the organization of energy and coordinating that um, with death? So the association of just being able to raise a zombie is not correct as much as it is uh, death magic, being able to talk to the dead, organize what's happening. It, it, am I hearing that correctly? I think there's a few factors here. I'll, I'll try and like bullet point them out so it's not too much. But um, 
to your previous question, you know, we had this idea of death magic as being something really benign and community oriented right up until Catholics went. Um, we like our saints and reliquaries and stuff and what we don't like what you're doing. So what you're doing is probably summoning demons and we never got rid of that stink. Right. So that's a factor. Sounds about right. <laughs> I how that went, but, um, to answer questions about what necromancy is and isn't, we have to answer questions about the nature of who we are, right? To look at a person's soul or physical body as all that they are, that's a really fairly modern and extremely uh, Abrahamic way of looking at the self. Most cultures throughout history looked at the soul as being something in many parts, if we look at Norse heathenry or things like uh, Greek practice, you see the soul in three parts. If you look at Egyptian practice, ancient Egyptian practice, the soul was in nine parts. That's the format that I work with. And each of those pieces of the soul has a very particular function, both during your life and after your death. They move on to different places and they serve different functions. And what part of that person we're working with, speaking to, calling up, is really dependent on what our goals are. Are we trying to help this family get peace? Are we hoping to um, understand something that wasn't clear at the time of their death? Are we hoping to encourage this deceased person to become a protector for their future family line? Like, what is our goal? And, and those are really important questions to ask. But I think that it's important to understand that necromancy is always going to function on a series of reversals. It's always about turning things around backwards, in a manner of speaking. When we think about paganism as a whole, or we think about uh, particularly crafts like Wicca that I'm a part of, we think about them as probably fertility cults, right? It's what would jump to most people's minds. Mm -hmm. But when your work is all about life, it's always going to be about dying, right? Because that's the end of life. I would but, absolutely agree. But when you turn that around backwards, when you reverse it as necromancy would, it's always going to be about life. It's always going to be about turning back towards earth and existence and looking at the beauty of of what we have been given and appreciating it in its fullness. So is it just about the organization of energy or one's soul or is it about physical remains? I can't say either is wrong or true. What is a revenant, a zombie, but a returned dead? That's the literal description. Right? I was declared dead and spontaneously revived. I'm now talking to you. What am I if not a revenant? My most powerful magical tool is this body that I'm haunting because I was once dead within it. What are living donors if not the incorporeal uh, just still occupying a body? They're just inanimate. So you'd be talking to people like people who are like in comas and things like that. Right. Those bodies on life support waiting to have their heart harvested. I mean, this is this is necromancy in the most literal and meaningful way, making life from death. Every time you put gasoline in your car and power it on dead dinosaurs or take 
the flesh of animals that have been killed and cook it into food for your family to revitalize yourself. That's necromancy. So I actually, what I love about that, and I am going to go ahead and poke poke the bear here. In previous episodes, Roe has given me a lot of grief about the phrase death positivity. I don't give you grief about it. I've just never heard it used in that way before. It's not a grief thing. Right. I've just never heard the terminology in that way. It's not, well, it's, if, if it were grief, I wouldn't be having you here to do this. <laughs> and the reason that you're responding like that is because we have a society that has been taught that death is wrong, death that should be avoided. But Mortalis, the way that you describe it is a beautiful description. It's just... It's a gorgeous way to describe that everything revolves around both life and death. We depend upon death every single day. Sure. So everything that we do all around you every moment of your day. Look in the room you're in right now. What do you have if not uh, pieces of wood from trees that are no longer growing? You have plastics that have been made from petroleum, which comes from, you know, dead animals. You have food around you that was once something living. It's everywhere all of the time, and we choose to ignore it. Absolutely. And I think that with death positivity, I'm I'm a very big proponent of it. I believe that ignoring that is ignoring 50% of life. I mean, it's just, it's, it's balance, and it's a cycle. There's something that I like telling people when they are talking about topics like this with me. And, you know, your your circulatory system functions in a really particular way. Your body moves through the heart and then moves through your body. And as it does so, it picks up toxins and loses oxygen along the way as it feeds it to your muscles and the other parts of your body, right? By the time that blood reaches your heart again, it is filthy. There's no life in it at all. Uh, I'm here to tell you, having seen it firsthand, that that blood is dark and murky and foul. It's not the beautiful bright red blood you're probably used to seeing in a horror movie. And it's running through your body right now all the time. Your, Your veins running one kind of blood as your arteries run another. When it comes back to your heart, your heart reoxygenates it sends it back to your body again. Every six seconds, with every beat of your heart, you have the potential to die. And your heart reanimates you, brings you back to life every six seconds. Right there in the left chamber of your heart, it reanimates that lifeless blood and sends it back to your body as something new. That's a huge part of our life every moment, and we just don't think about it. Isn't it like I think every so many years we die off or something like that or like our skin cells and everything, all of our cells in our body are constantly being replenished by new cells. So we're constantly dying and being reborn on a regular basis anyways. Up to a point in our life and then after that it's all decay, but yes. So this is also what happens with cancer. This is a situation where cells just replicate and keep going and keep going without that cycle in place. I talk about that a bit in my book. That's apoptosis is uh, if you don't have cellular death, Continuing growth, continuing that cycle, life going on forever is cancer. Life continuing unchecked is never a good thing. So I do got to ask you one thing to slightly veer off. I have studied a lot of necromancy before, and it always leads me over to the Catholic Church, which is the main like proponent of a lot of this stuff. 
yet you have their reliquaries where you have pieces of bones from saints. You have the blood of St. Genarius, I can't ever pronounce that guy's name, that reliquifies. You have so many things in the Catholic Church that are necromantic. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure. If, Ossuaries. Yes. I'm not even sure if that was a real word that I just said. But I mean, to the point where they even have the holy foreskin of all things, which is not at all creepy or weird in any way, shape, or form. Think of the most the most delightful piece of irony that we have on this planet is Galileo's middle finger on display in a Catholic church. Yes, telling everybody to fuck off. It's awesome. <laughs> Where is this? I need to go. <laughs> I forget. I, I hope it's pointed at the Vatican. I forget which cathedral it's in, but it's uh, that's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. They also have the finger of Thomas. They have all of these these relics uh, of 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 death that they continuously go back and 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 use as worships as worship um as worship focal points i guess heck even the way that we're buried in these kinds of traditional christian beliefs they they want to maintain the body as long as possible the idea of like for example so many people i think you touch in this the, in the book this idea that uh, people want to make sure that grandma is in a casket that's airtight inside of a vault and nothing will ever happen to her. She's going to be perfectly preserved and fine. It's, it's almost a form of necromancy to try and maintain life as it was in an unnatural manner. I think that also we have to sort of look at the broader picture of death care practices in the modern world to kind of get an understanding of that. And, and sure, we could, we could poke a stick at how a lot of, uh, Catholic practice, a lot of Bible, a lot of all that can sort of loop back around to Greek practices, which borrowed a lot from Egyptian practices. And we can look at mummification and, and the idea again, like I, noted before that the body is part of the soul and you know, so long as the body is preserved, that piece of you can go on existing. And those things were really culturally important to those pagan practices. But if we're coming back around to modern practices, you know, it, human beings, we have a really short memory, right? Right. We want to, we want to sort of compare everything to right now and what we know right this second. But, um, in any culture, at any point in history, everything goes in waves. At times in history, when we're very sex positive, we are death regressive. At times when we're very death positive, we tend to be sex regressive. So look forward to that as we become more death positive in America right now. But <laughs> you know, we suffered a lot of loss kind of back to back in America. We had the Civil War, tons of people dying. Uh, lots of young people dying who really didn't have a choice one way or the other to fight in this battle, going off and dying in these battlefields and laying there in mass graves, right? That's that's hard to deal with as a nation. And, and not dying the good death, the Victorian great death. Right. So Absolutely. you've had these people sort of creating embalming practices wholesale, trying to figure out ways to preserve these bodies so that they could get them on a train and get them back home to their families in a way that wasn't a liquid. And you have to understand sort of the trauma of just a nation full of survivors that had to look at whatever state their loved one was in by the time it got back to them. We didn't have refrigeration or planes or, or you know, 
they're they're getting back some very unpleasant corpses. And then as we carry that forward, we look at World War II and the huge amount of death that we experienced, and that's fresh on the heels of the Spanish flu. And we've got all these sort of practices built up in not imagining that our dead have suffered. Make them as pleasant as they can be so that they can be preserved in this peaceful state. Peaceful was was the key because we wanted to imagine that that loved one was at rest because we knew they died poorly. You talk a little bit about your book uh, about the process cremation. Actually, you've got a nice little chapter in there about it, uh, different forms of cremation and so forth. Um, you talk in there about how it has a sordid past and about how cremation is becoming more and more a common thing. And in Japan, uh, Japan, I think it is like 95.7% or something like that of people getting cremated. Um, and you make reference to this story about the Cremation Act of 1902. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, gosh. Um, the statistic you're thinking of is even higher. I believe everyone is cremated by rule except for uh, the royal family. Mm. But um, yeah, the Cremation Act, people had to really fight for that. Um, and that's right on the heels, of course, of, of the Anatomy Act, which we also had to fight for. Um, people don't like change in death. That's that's sort of funny. We're we're weird like that as a as a world. But <laughs> I mean, I've made the joke many times on the show that being dead is, could be it could be a lot more fun than being alive. Like if I get cremated, I want as many things done with my ashes as possible. I want to be made to necklaces, put into you know planters. You know, have 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 some fun with it. You know, because this is stuff that I can't do when I'm alive. Ha- make a record out of me. You know, there's all these things that you can do with people's ashes. Fireworks. Fireworks is bullets, another. Yeah, you know. Glass. I don't, I don't know about yep. bullets, but you know, I'm fine with being put into a necklace or a Christmas. Or, I mean, hell, there's even a company now that'll put your ashes into a dildo. I believe. Um, that they've got. Okay. You, you didn't hear about that? Yeah, this is real. This exists. No, no, no this is real. But. Uh- the, the the idea of this cremation act and with Japan, um, my husband's actually Japanese, so we will go and make our uh, New Year's blessings when we're able to go, uh, and it is in, in central Tokyo. But as far as this goes, did this start in England, this idea of the, the Western acceptance of cremation in law? I, I don't know that I would go that far, and... Frankly, there's there's been too much of history where we were giving the English credit for stuff. But, um, Fair point. We, cremation has always been important throughout all of recorded history. We've just used different words for it, really. Uh, we even can see in ancient Egypt when they suffered a plague, they turned a temple into a crematory, which... Uh, we have record of them building huge kilns, uh, processing lye, uh, lime to to spread on the, the plague bodies to keep them uh, as uh, sanitized as possible until they could be cremated. And so that's that's certainly huge forever. We give the English credit where it is not due for. Uh, cremation existing legally today, but really that credit is owed to a delightfully wacky pagan gentleman. Do tell us that story. <laughs> I would love to hear this one. 
So credit for cremation is really due to William Price. And William Price was a person born in the 1800s. He died in 1893. And he was a medical doctor, but was a reconstructionist of neo-Druidry, which being a very wealthy white man, probably that worked out for him because he was so weird that I can't imagine that working out for literally anyone else. (laughs) There are the, everyone should Google this guy and look him up because he had these ridiculous like pajamas that he wore everywhere that, that were embroidered with symbols and things and they're just like bright green. He looked like a Riddler type character from Batman, which is just fantastic. I want to be that level of strange when I'm old. But. <laughs> I was going to say, this sounds like an awesome lifestyle that yet again, like you said, a white rich man would easily be able to get away with. But, uh, Mr. Mr. Price suffered a tragedy. His infant son had died, and in keeping with the uh, what record they had at the time of the historical practices of of Druidic practitioners, he knew that an open air cremation would be most spiritually appropriate for a Druid. So he built a pyre on a hillside and set about cremating his infant son. Um, and really, some parts of this story, like if we look at them in hindsight, it would not have been really uncommon for children to die in this time period. I mean, everybody was dying of everything. Um, he was a doctor, so most well-suited to declaring his son dead of, of some natural cause. Um, it would not have been uncommon for... Um, a person to bury their own loved ones on their property. Like most of this was pretty ordinary stuff. What made it unordinary was that he decided to cremate his son on a burial pyre. It might have gone unnoticed, but some neighbor or other made a complaint. The police were called in. They removed his son from the burial pyre. As it was burning? As it was burning. Karen needs to mind her business. Wow. Good grief. Not only that, they put his son into evidence and he was held there for months for the record. Wow. Ew. He went to trial. They they uh, attempted to try him for, um, oh, goodness, I can't think of what charge they they held against him. But but ultimately, um, they, they, just, they felt that cremation was illegal, so they, they took him to trial for it, and he argued that, it was not expressly illegal, and he was expressing his religious rights. The judge held that he was correct. It was not expressly illegal, so he was let go, and he was allowed to complete the cremation of his son uh, quite some time later. Um, they made cremation illegal almost immediately after, and that was in... 1884, Um, later another medical doctor who was familiar with him put forth the Cremation Act of 1902, which made cremation legal, and that guy got all the credit for bringing this, this thing to the public, despite the fact that it was really a bunch of people being mean to someone for their religious practices. 
So how is it so – because I wasn't aware that it's still being demonized at this point by the – I guess it would be the American, the American funeral practice, um, which I guess kind of ties into this book because you make reference in this book about how funeral practices – um, now the funeral industry is very much Christian oriented and, and things along those lines to where if you want to get cremated, like it's kind of you kind of it's kind of side eyed. You know, you kind of get that look like, OK, you know, because it, it's it's still looked at as a pagan practice. This still happens. It can be in a lot of ways. I mean, there's certainly this idea that if you want to be cremated, you're either you're some millennial whippersnapper who doesn't know what's good for you or you are secular at best, right? It It is perceived as sort of an irreligious choice. Mm-hmm. But I think in a lot of ways, the, the sort of Christianization of the funeral practice exists in the same way that everything else is Christianized. It's just this undercurrent left over from whenever that, that has just sort of camped there. And, and the funerary industry is very, uh, behind the times in a lot of ways. And I say this often to people and everyone thinks I'm wrong until they think about it for two seconds. But the funeral industry is the last bastion of racial segregation in America. I, would like- I love that you're touching on this because some of the videos on YouTube from uh, Katie Do- Dowdy, for Ask a Mortician, she touches on and um, exemplifies some of the issues uh, with the funerary industry and how a lot of uh, people of color, in particular, have started their own mortuaries um, and in order to ensure that their dead are cared for and they can celebrate in a manner in which is far more appropriate for their culture and what they want. And I think you only have to pause and think to yourself what the, quote, black funeral home in your town is to know that that's very true. Absolutely. I mean, the care of their hair and uh, to ensure that they are able to have a funeral in the manner in which they want to. Uh, You know, uh, one thing that I learned, for example, there's no specific rush to have the funeral because they want to ensure that everyone is that would like to be there has the opportunity. So That's you will have multi-hour funerals with many different components. So speaking of which, I'd actually like to ask you a question. Your book goes over so many different practices that are just something new for a lot of people here. And I'd like to ask you, being part of the funeral industry, there's um, it's notorious for being sexist. It's notorious, like you said, for WASP-associated um, practices that um, are considered mainstream instead of actually associated with the religion. But we have everything here from... You know, crypto paganism, discordianism, yes, discordianism. I was so happy yes. to put discordianism in this book. I, 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 I was, mm-hmm. I was so because you do it very respectfully and very funny. And I was like, wow, because you're seeing all these other pagan practices, and all of a sudden discordianism comes up. Because I know somebody who was an original discordian, and um, I keep waiting. I'm like, okay, so is Dudism coming here? Is the Church of the Subgenius coming somewhere down the road, or something like that? But go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, and there's even, you know, nods to Hellenism, et cetera, et cetera. 
I wanted to ask, um, I know it's going to be something like a chicken before the egg situation, but you, you mentioned that you do these practices for families and for individuals that have indicated that. Have you done all of the ones uh, listed inside of your book or did you do the research and then it opened up and people kept were coming to you asking for that? I'd like to know a little bit more about your experience in providing these kinds of options for the bereaved. So I think it's important to know that for the pagan community, obviously, for your listeners, I, I assume most of them know that paganism is an umbrella term that covers quite a few faith practices, but not only that, it's a pejorative term. It's applied to us by uh, Christians, and it's meant to simply mean someone who is not Christian. It applies to everyone. But when you are a clergy person within one of those practices deemed pagan, you're almost called to be a universalist, particularly if you work in in a service area where people might need you, um, because there are so few within those industries. I think if you're if you're a witch and you have a funeral director in front of you who's a discordian, for example you'd probably prefer that funeral director to the Catholic funeral director. You know that that person at least understands where you're coming from. And and that's been the case a lot of times for me as a clergy person. It's that I happen to be in situations where I'm encountering people in, in a context where I'm doing disaster spiritual care and I might not be of the faith practice that they are, but there's this sort of unspoken understanding that that we'll be there for each other. So I've, I've always made it my goal to understand as much as I can about different groups and their rites of passage so that I could, could do service in, in those ways. But when I sat down to write this book, of course, I did the research. Of course, it's pretty obvious that I reached out to people in those different communities to give their opinions, their thoughts, their feelings, their facts. <laughs> but in a lot of times I was creating rituals whole cloth out of scraps of historical precedent. And yes, I have in one manner or another served all the groups listed therein and, and done a great deal of those rituals or some variant thereof. But the point of it all was really putting something in front of other people so that they knew how to serve those families. I got to ask, did you run into any resistance when you were doing this book? Did you, when you went to these, these groups and these organizations said, Hey, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. Did you, did you get any kickback from any of these people? Did any, were these people reluctant to tell you any of these things or what was their initial reaction like? Um, there there were a couple of individuals and a couple of groups that were not open to the idea. Um, I mean, I was writing this book no matter what, but there, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was certainly a point when I was trying to decide what I was including. And there were a few groups that 
were very resistant to the idea of being included under the pagan header for reasons that I understand. Um, but I think not including them also does a disservice to making sure that the funeral professionals can understand where they're coming from. And to that, I would say, I hope someone out there is inspired to write that book for those groups. Well, the, this is a book that needs to exist. I, that's why I was saying earlier that I couldn't believe something like this already isn't out there because I've all, okay. There, what actually, what I was thinking of, there was, um, there's a story of, and my, I'm sure my friend too, he's listening. She's going to laugh, but there's a story of a UFO that crashed down in Texas and they had this body of an alien and the alien passed away and they didn't know what to do with it. So they buried it. And when they buried it, they gave it a Christian, uh, Christian burial. I've been to the graveyard. I've, I've been to the area and everything, but I always laid in the back of my head as, well, if this did happen and this creature was not of this earth and was from someplace else, um, that doesn't mean that it, it, that it was Christian. So how would you go about giving a burial to something like this and giving it a Christian funeral when it wasn't, it wasn't Christian, which led me down this rabbit hole because I've been thinking about this stuff for years of if somebody who is in Wicca or, or something along those lines or of a different religion dies and they have a funeral service, there's no go-to thing to be like, okay, other than the person's religion or whatever, but you have a lot of people that practice um, privately or quietly or don't belong to a group or anything like that. If a person like something like this happens and a person is a practitioner of whatever thing, uh, we'll just call it the other for, for lack of a better term, then what happens in a funeral situation? Like, you know, the, the, this person obviously is not a Christian. They don't espouse to those beliefs and there's reasons that they, that they believe what they believe. You know, so in that situation, what would you do? There, There is no guideline. There is no book. There is no reference to go to other than stuff that you have to go around and dig through on the Internet. And it would just seem like this book would be something that you just want to go up to give to a funeral service and be like, here, you, you might need this at some point or another. Because in the modern day, a lot of people are embracing paganism and different practices outside of the realm of Christianity. And this just seems like it's something that's going to become the norm at some point, and there's no reference to go to. So I'm like, how does this book not already exist in somewhere or some way, shape, or form? <laughs> um, I hope I'm making sense. I'm babbling here, but it just it just blows my mind that there's nothing like this here already. There's no there's no go to or anything like that. This is something that I really feel that people should have access to. You know, and I just I can't understand how this hasn't existed yet and how nobody's gone to the point of putting all of this stuff together. It seems like there's something more that can be expounded on here. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I mean, make of that what you will, you know, take it where you want. Well, they have put it together. So as a, a resource, I, I deeply appreciate this. Like, I just barely got out of the ER and they were asking me about my religious preference and everything there was a Western Christian religion. And then there was none or other. There is a trend of a lack of acknowledgement. So this is a wonderful service to have provided. I'd like to ask you, um, with regards to that, um, I'm trying to think of, bear with me, because... Um, in a in a funerary situation, I'd imagine, um, and we want to be able to be respectful of the dead and their families and everything. Have you seen like a relief, uh, a comfort in knowing in those communities that they have someone 
that will do that. I know you were talking about there's a, a mutual respect because of the dominance and the, the lack of respect from the majority of the funerary industry for anything that is not Christian or typical mainstream. But uh, I'd imagine, and I'd like to hear from you, it, it must be very comforting and nice for these families to know that they'll be able to practice something and, with a professional there to guide it. It's funny. I think I think people are really reluctant to reach out to authors and say you know, how they feel about things. Maybe they think that that they won't respond or it's weird. But I don't actually get a lot of of feedback or comments. What I have has been extremely positive. I've gotten some messages that talked about how they were able to use the book for a funeral or how it meant something to them. And those are precious to me, of course, but um, I encourage people listening. If, if there's an author that you enjoy or they've written something that's meant something to you, write them a letter, write them an email, reach out. I, I think that you'd be amazed at, at how much people are, Excited to hear from people. Can I ask you a little bit about afterlife destinations since you've got it covered in here a little bit? You list a few of the different beliefs and where people eventually end up. The first one I want to talk about, of course, is Hades because the because Hades is very different than the um, per, the representation of Christian hell. And you've got a few of them, different ones listed here. So let's talk about Hades for, for a second. What What is Hades as represented in your book? Um, so I, I hit on some different, different, uh, afterlife prices and certainly not all of them. My God, there's so many, but Hades is a specific portion of the afterlife. It is the realm of the eponymous Hades, um, and their spouse Persephone. They are the rulers of that place. And Hades is as big as America filled with tons of places from Tartarus to, the Elysian Fields to Asphodel. It's it's a huge place. I'm not sure how to answer your question. Other than well, it's not the fire and brimstone um, pits of suffering that is depicted in the Christian hell. For the most part, it is just another realm that you go to and you occupy. But it's it's traditionally gloomy and everything as 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 does that. But it's not the same representation as what you see in the Christian hell, though. Correct. So I would like to. I have a couple comments. It's important to recognize that hell in the Christian Bible is a misunderstanding of a word. The word that is chosen, that the, the original translation, the word really meant a place outside. It meant to be outcast. It was a place outside the city, outside the protection of the city walls. In terms of the time period, we would be talking about a homeless encampment or a leper encampment. Um, a place of suffering and difficulty. And when we had people who didn't understand the language very well, like King James, uh, employing people to translate, they did a bad job sometimes. And I think that that's a huge area where that's true. But all that aside, um, there are certainly belief practices that have a retributive afterlife or, or a place where you have to receive some sort of uh, penance is a bad word, but that you you need to uh, make good on wrongs committed during your life. But it, they're certainly not like those Christian ideals. And I would not call Hades gloomy. 
um, Hades is just sorted into different sorts of places. The, the Fortunate Isles and the Elysium Fields are beautiful utopian places filled with, with gardens and just all the earthly delights you could imagine. That's uh, what I believe in. <laughs> Elysium. You also have places in the underworld in Hades that are, uh, for example, the, the Fields of Mourning, which is a place where people who have wasted their life away, just where they go, it's just sort of gray and neutral. And then there's Tartarus, which is a place that a flaming river runs to, and it's it's a difficult place for people who have been cruel in their life. But most depictions would show the deeper places as cold, and those are the places of suffering. What about, I can never pronounce this one, the Tierno Neog? Is that what it is? Uh, Tiernog, yeah. It's just the other world in Druid practice, which might be described any number of ways because it is simply another place. Or the uh, Egyptian comedic afterlife, uh, Aru and Duat. One is nothingness if you haven't lived a worthy life, but the other, the field of reeds, is a duplicate of here. It's exactly like the life you just lived, only in it everything goes right. So I gotta ask them, and again, I know that you don't know all the answers, I'm just looking for theory. There are all these different places that you can go after you leave this mortal coil. So where do we end up? Do we end up where we end up based on our beliefs at the time that we die? Or is, you know, is there is there like somebody sitting at a switchboard or something when you get to the other side? They go, oh, well, I see here that you are a Norse pagan. So that leaves us over to the Falkvener. But there is a lot of different places we can go in there as well. I mean, is there... Is is that how is that how you think it works, or what is your theories on that? So I think that we get very hung up on right and wrong, and yes and no, and we really like direct answers. And I think the question of where we go when we die is a little bit flawed to begin with, because, like I said, I believe the soul is in many parts, and those different parts of you can have different destinations when you die. But Imagine you're going on vacation. Where are you going on vacation? Florida. Sure, whatever. Where are you going within Florida? Nothing is telling you where to go. You get to decide. I think for a lot of people, they are going to wind up with afterlives they believe in or the parts of their souls that would move on to an afterlife will get the afterlife they believe in. For many pagan people, I think it would be more in keeping with the deities to which they are devoted or aligned. I work particularly with Anubis and with the Morrigans. Those have very different and particular afterlives, but I've chosen something yet different still for myself. So I will get none of those, actually. Oh, that sounds like <laughs> that's like the end of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You get nothing, sir. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> What I have chosen is, since I align my life's work and my life's magic to working with the dead and helping the dead work with their living, um, I have made some ritual arrangements that when I die, my the many facets of my soul, like the sides on a D20, will remain bound here 
to be of assistance to others. So you have a full-time job waiting for you after you're, after you're done with this one. That's the plan. Yes. It sounds like a, a death guide from one in life and, and in death. That's like a bump of sorts, I suppose, but I like to think of it as a reverse necromancer. <laughs> I like it. Maybe I'll summon up the living for the dead. That would be much funnier. I heard somewhere that you actually have a ritual set up, and I don't remember if it was on a podcast or maybe it was on your site, that you have a ritual set up that after you have departed from here that there is a ritual set up to where people can, um, for lack of a better term, contact you if your services are needed in the afterlife. Is that true? It will appear in my next book, yes. And it actually could, could be used now while I'm alive. It would just, at this time, summon a very particular part of my soul. I see. So what um, what services do you offer in those regards? In my current iteration, while living, if someone were to use that spell, they would only be able to summon my, my umbra. My, it's sort of the shadow part of your soul. It's the piece of you that takes on trauma and difficulty, protects you from absorbing all that darkness. And wow. That piece of me is willing to work as uh, an avenging spirit. They could be called on in a time of difficulty to stand in where you needed a bit of a warrior, so to speak. How How could – wow, that's, that's a lot to put on yourself because you're already dealing like, – as you said earlier, you deal with grief counseling and things like that. That's a lot of emotional baggage to take on for the benefits of others, especially people that you don't know to be able to put yourself out there, uh, even on a spiritual level, um, let alone in the afterlife. Because, you know, most people, oh, great, you know, death is coming. I'm, 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 I'm done. I don't have to pay taxes anymore. You know, I'm going to go to the great beyond where it's going to be eternal rest and slumber. Whereas you're kind of like, nah, I'm, I, I need to keep working here. You know, and you're taking on, a, in doing that, you're taking on a lot of emotional baggage. Um, Actually, if I may, yeah. why? Why are you making this decision? I think that without delving into my personal life too much, I think that when I died as a young person, being sent back here to live, that was a gift that is very difficult to repay and really not a gift I asked for. It was sort of like, like your friend buying you a cookbook because they think you're bad at cooking or something. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go be alive, want it or not, because I said so. That's that's kind of how that went. But I got wow. I got to go back to a lifetime of experiences that I could not have anticipated at that point in my life. In a time when I only saw darkness and misery, the gods could see a future in which I had beauty and happiness and a family and works to do in the world and families to be there for. And, and that is a huge gift. And I know that, well, frankly, I'm just too much of a fidget to have a quiet afterlife. I, I need something to do. So. I love that. I have things to do. I have people to see. Thank you. Don't think I've ever met somebody that has put so much thought into their afterlife as to what, like, this is like, you're planning this as though a person were planning a retirement package. 
you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really sure how else to put it. Like, I don't, I've I never, actually think it's incredibly beautiful. Oh, it is cool. It's very cool. I don't know if I would want to put myself out there to, for that burden though, for, for, you know, like it's cause I'm one of the people that's like, Hey, when I'm gone, I kind of want to go on and move and do, I want to do new things. You know, I want to see and explore new things and do new things or whatever. But while I'm here, I try to help as many people as I possibly can. I don't know if I would want to do that. Um, after, after exiting this world. So, I mean, that's, that's very commendable for you to do that. I have a lot of respect for, for that. How, how does your family feel about this? Or, you know, are, are they, what have you talked to them and what do they think about this? Well, I only have, well, I have three children and only one of, of them is old enough to have a conversation with me about it. But my friends, my spouse, my, my oldest child, they, love the idea that I will be available for future generations of this family to call on. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. That's pretty neat. I, you know, yeah, I would definitely want to be there for my kids and my family and my friends and stuff if possible. But, um, people that I don't know, I mean, I don't mean to sound selfish, but I don't know if I want to take out anybody else's burdens after I'm out of here. <laughs> I commend you for that. That is a very brave and cool thing to do though. Though I, I, I love your whole attitude about this, this whole idea of, like when your time comes, you're going to be like, well, yeah, I'm ready for this. So, you know, I, let's whatever, let's do this. And, you know, and I can get, get going cause I've got to get to work here, you know? And it's just the fact that it's so, it's kind of blase for you. Like, this is like, you're like, yeah, this is that, you know, we all know that's coming. We all know when you're going down the hill, you can only put the brakes on slow for so long. Um, but the fact that you're just completely comfortable with it and not only comfortable with it, but are already making plans as to what you're going to do after you're not here is kind of refreshing and kind of cool, you know, so I, I, I definitely commend you on that. Um, can I ask you one more thing about cremation, though, if you don't mind? Sure. I did want to touch on something there. You were, yeah, go right ahead. You were saying doing doing things for strangers. You weren't sure if you'd want to do that. But I think I think particularly given how I grew up and some of the things I've been through, there's you share a bond with people who are dealing with similar things in their life. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've spent a lot of my adult life not only doing death work and volunteering for hospice and that sort of thing, but I also volunteer as an ad litem in my district, um, working in child advocacy for the courts. And, you know, just sort of you have this bond with these kids because you can look back to a time when you needed an advocate and there was none. And I think that if and when a time comes that people wanted to call on me, it won't be strangers because there'll be that bond that, that we shared those experiences and that I understand the pain that, that led them to call me. I think it's a a wonderful path in life. Admirable. It takes a special kind of person. It takes all kinds. So I see where you're going with Ro. You're just like, I'm done. I'm off to my Florida. <laughs> Whereas, well, no, I mean, you know, with others, there's this uh, a beautiful capability like we're seeing with Mortellus that they're able to use what they have to transition and assist. I, I guess that's the best way I can describe it myself, but... I mean, you are more than welcome to um, elaborate if I'm keep me honest here. So, I think it's 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 a beautiful task, beautiful gift to give to the world and to others. 
Thank you. I would like for there to be at least one ghost on the planet that people are aware chose to be here and wants to be doing what they're doing. <laughs> See, that's another thing you never hear about. I guess that's what the, the direction I'm coming from as well is you never hear about like ghosts wanting to be here. It's always people like looking to move on and looking to, or or they're here because they have unresolved business or something like that. Um, I don't, you don't really hear too much about people that that want to stay around afterwards to help other people to, uh, to move people along or do whatever. I get this feeling that like if somebody were to pass away, you'd be like, yeah, I'll be here waiting for you on the other side to, you know, hold your hand and, you know, come on, I'll give you the guided tour. You know, that, that just seems like you seem like you'd be a great afterlife tour guide, you know, to be honest, I have always, even as a little girl, I was drawn to Anubis. I've always loved Cerebus. And I have nothing but respect for Reapers. They're seen as figures of fear, but ultimately, I mean, even when it comes to Azrael, these are people that come to you in one of the largest transitions in your existence. And, or not people necessarily, these these entities, these figures, they're there to be a guide and to assist in a situation that could be quite terrifying and, and, and lonesome. And it's, I've always found it to be beautiful. Yeah, we think of, of the Grim Reaper as this very particular specific named entity, but we, we get that idea from a figure called the Anku. Are you familiar at all? I'm not. Please do tell. Yonku is the last person in a given area who has died in a calendar year. So churches have parishes, covens have covensteads. Like any given sort of uh, worshipful place has an area that they affect of, of so many miles. Like a Catholic church has a certain area that is their parish, for example. So the last person to die in a year in the area affected by the place where they will be buried becomes the Anku for the next year, and they are the Reaper. It's their job to collect the people who died in their own area. So imagine if you die on December 28th or whatever, and come January, the person next door to you dies. It's your job to collect them, and I think that's precious. I know in a transition that I would want someone there that would know what's happening, that's able to comfort. So I think that that's amazing. I love that concept. Thank you. Someone who knows you and wants to be there, wants to see you safely to the other side. I think that's that's really amazing. Agreed. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Uh, you... Um, Actually, you edit that out. I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all kind of cooked right now from the holiday yeah. weekend and stuff. And, um, and I just, I'm just really glad that you added that. That was just, I, to me, it's so rare to find someone that thinks in the same manner. And it's, it's, it's really just so difficult when everyone is so adverse to any idea of death. So I got to ask you about the method of cremation called promission. There's a whole bunch of other ones that are in here. Um, promission was the one that you seem the most excited about. Would you like to describe that? So I 
I love a teachable moment. So I have to say they're not methods of cremation. These are methods of disposition. We, we dispose of bodies. That's a correct use of that word. Um, cremation is specifically uh, by burning. Uh, promotion is a method of disposition that promotion is, well, let's see, we have aquamation, which is water. We have resomation, which is earth. I actually really love that one. And promotion is nitrogen. So it, it's a method that is seen a bit overseas. It's still sort of in experimental phases, but it involves reducing the the body to powder using liquid nitrogen, which I just think is fun, right? What kid didn't want to watch Beekman's World and see them shatter a banana or something like that? <laughs> I've done it with a rose myself. And, and, you know, sort of anybody who's had a kidney stone, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you've had to be in the bathtub where they like, they use the the sonic waves to sort of jiggle them into pieces. So the body is drenched in liquid nitrogen and just sort of jiggled in a similar fashion until it breaks down into nothingness. Um, it, it evaporates away liquid and leaves you with sort of this fluffy powder. You get more remains back than you would with, say, cremation by almost double, but it's very light and fluffy. Um, cremation, of course, you, you get back cremains, which are not, not more than ground bone. They're not, they're not truly ashes, even though people call them that. But I'm really very fond of resummation, which is reducing the body to earth. Um, the body is composted in a, in a quick manner and your family is given back almost five wheelbarrows full of, of earth, which can be used for gardening. And I, I think that's really wonderful. It's amazing. Where was that legal? I must go. <laughs> Sort of in the the broader strokes, it is legal here in the United States, but only certain areas are allowing it right now. So essentially, I could be turned into five wheelbarrows of dirt, and people could grow stuff in me then. Absolutely, and I think I that, think that's great. I think that's really fun, particularly for say um, a pagan family who might be inclined toward ideas about life and fertility to you know plant a community garden. Grow food. Let let the children in your community use the earth that you became to make new life and new sustenance. I, I think that's super cool. See, I'm a I bigger guy, and you'd probably get about eight wheelbarrows with dirt out of me. Which should, I, I've got some friends that are really into gardening, and I just don't like. I have no problem with tomatoes and hell, even pot being grown in me. But I don't know if people would. I don't know, Shelley. Would you eat tomatoes that were grown of my body? Mmm, roast salsa. <laughs> to you right now. You need to hear this. I think everyone needs to hear this. Um, every major producer of agricultural meats in on this planet composts those remains. It just happens all the time. If it's not being turned into pet food, it's, it's probably getting composted. Mm-hmm. Uh, that stuff is going into gardens all the time. And there's not a square inch of earth on this entire planet that doesn't have human remains in it. So every bit of food that you've ever eaten was already grown in human remains. Mm -hmm. So like it shouldn't, it should be more comforting that you know the name associated with it. Like, oh, this was grown in Jets. Yeah, I'd be fine with it. Well, like I said, I mean, I like if I get, uh, I kind of want to be cremated, but I don't want to be like my mom's ashes sit downstairs on a shelf. Because she said she wanted to be cremated. My dogs sit next to me on my desk here. 
Um, but I've often like I've I've wanted to send some of his ashes out and have like a little necklace made with his name and stuff in it. And I kind of would like that to happen, which I don't think my family would allow. My kids might, but I don't think my wife would. Where it would be like, yeah, take a record, make make a record out of me, do this with me, do that with me, you know, because then I could live on in all of these cool little trinkets and things and and all of this kind of stuff. And my friends that are magical practitioners, I'd be like, here, have some of my ashes, make an amulet or do something with it, you know, and that way you could keep me around or what have you. I'm completely fine with that, and then because I don't know how much I don't know how much in a in a physical sense or whatever I will still be here if I moved on or not. But if I'm still if part of me is still here, I'd like to be spread out and like have some fun with what I am. I don't want to have my ashes just sit in the ground somewhere or sit on a shelf somewhere and not. I mean, do something cool with me. And and if you're going to compost me, then sure, grow a garden out of me. Do something neat with me or something. Don't. I just don't want to be like a body just sitting, not not doing anything for the most part. You know, maybe like you have larger aspirations in a spiritual sense. I like t- take something and do something cool with me. Reuse, recycle, you know, whatever. Um, Actually, that leads me to an interesting. Just one last question, if I may. How often do you hear these kinds of uh, sentiments from people that come to you when they're planning? Like this desire for posterity. That's very common, I think, in in pagan communities with magical thinkers. You're going to see a lot of people who want to leave uh, remains to multiple people or leave them in different objects and pass them around to different individuals. That's pretty common. I think it's it's more in um, Abrahamic faith practices where you're going to see everything must be in one place, in one box, that sort of thing. Um, it's more common than you'd think. That sounds really boring. <laughs> well, I was raised Mormon, and um, the first time that I ever brought up doing something that was not the casket in the uh, in the vault completely, uh, the idea is that um, if you if a piece of you is lost, then you have to go get it. You'll spend your days searching for. And it never made sense to me because it was like, well, do I have to go find every haircut that I ever had then? Do I have to every time I clipped my nails? I mean, it it is like uh, Mortella said, very, very Abrahamic in nature. So uh, it's it's uh, having the exact opposite for paganism. It sounds natural in a way. So searching for pieces fingernails and hair don't really count in that way. They're not really remains. Um, Many cultures do have that sort of belief, but it applies more to your bones and teeth because those types of remains have a different sort of magical quality about them. Mm. I think with the Mormons, they actually do use that in their lessons. Chase down your hairs. Every component of your body must be collected. I was told that as a child, and I was so confused. I was like... This is going to be very hard. You were talking about um, having uh, cremated remains in your in your home. Mm-hmm. I have um, some next to me that I just collected from a, a family here in my region. This uh, this particular individual died not too long ago, and it was someone who was um, dangerous and abusive during their life and had caused them harm. And after taking these cremains into their home, they began experiencing poltergeist activity. They felt that even in death, this person was still abusing them. 
So I was asked to take them in because they couldn't bear to get rid of them, but they couldn't stand the harm. So uh, like any good necromancer, I run a daycare for the problematic dead. My office here is, is warded off and actually I'm looking at three caskets from where I'm sitting and these cremated remains and their human bones sort of here and there. There's a jar of teeth sitting in front of me that someone mailed me. <laughs> wow. That's one of the things I was going to ask you about. Um, God, there's so many questions I want to ask you. <laughs> but um, Of course, you, being that you are a necromancer, um, this is a dumb question, but I know somebody out there is going to ask it, so let's get this out of the way. You're not somebody who's going, because you're a mortician and you do things you do, you don't take somebody else's remains home and use those for necromantic practices. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure that you don't do that, correct? Probably not. Okay. Very, very clearly defined differences between my work as a clergy person, my work in death care, and my work as an necromancer. These are very different spaces. Anything that I have in front of me to work with was something sent to me, gifted to me, or they were retired medical specimens. I have a few wound their way into my care. Um, but also for your listeners, just like I was talking about, do you have cremains sitting around your house of a pet or a loved one that you can't bear to look at anymore or they've caused you problems? Send them to me, and I'll add them to my collection of of, of the uh, forgotten. If I may, sure. Those uh, this daycare for the dead kind of a thing. <laughs> sure. Let's um, let's say that I die, I get cremated. I'm causing problems. I'm gifted. And I show up at your house. How does that conversation start? I mean, there's got to be a very interesting kind of exchange where it's like, all right, welcome. We have things to discuss. So you're, you're saying someone has sent your remains to me because you are a troublemaker. I'm a troublemaker, Poltergeist. I am just a racket everywhere I go. So, basically, they come into a quarantine space. Um, I have three acres here that, that are family land, which I understand that amount of privilege. Yay. But um, the land is warded. Anything can come onto the land. Not everything can leave. Only benign or benevolent incorporeal beings can exit the property. Anything else is trapped here. Um I will spiritually caretake this place in perpetuity. It, it, long after my death, I'll be caretaking this place. Um, my home is also warded, but only the benign or the benevolent can enter my home. My office, which is sort of a potting shed outside that I've, I've put up insulation and paneling. It pretends to be an office, but it's really, it's really not. <laughs> it's, it's a shed. Um, it's a warded space that sort of quarantines the, the new folks. They can't go out onto the property. They have to stay in here until they've understood the situation. So I go to the shed. You wind up in my office where I sit hours and hours every day. So you have me to harass. My office for the last couple of weeks has been filled with frogs that have been pouring out of a casket that wound up in my care. Um, I was dealing with the new guy throwing boxes at me. So I sit at my desk and ignore them as though they're toddlers for a while. (laughs) 
the newly deceased uh, sometimes are a little difficult to deal with at first because they're harder to communicate with. They just haven't settled into the space yet. Um, people who've been deceased longer, you can have a rational conversation with in a more meaningful way. Once they understand that they can't leave and they can't do harm here and they understand the parameters of how they can move and whether or not I leave gifts on their altar, food, incense, those sorts of things. Um, Interesting. So I would show up and I'm like, what am I doing here? I could cause trouble, throw things cause things that are unnatural, you're going to ignore me and you're finally going to, there's going to be a state in which I have an opportunity to learn and to uh, perhaps grow in my new uh, form into something that's a little less obnoxious, I would assume. So that's very fascinating. Once I've come to the determination that you're not going to cause problems for my children, for example, if they're I would allow you to roam freely between my office and the property. That's as far as you could go. Um, And you wouldn't be lonely here because there are lots of spirits here. And uh, think of it as uh, a rehab center, for lack of a better word. Um, I talk, Uh I work, I'm someone who will talk to them without being afraid. If they behave well, then I leave great offerings on there on their altar and things that give them energy and strength. And when they become enlightened, for lack of a better word, enough to no longer be a danger, then they can just freely leave the property and come and go as they like. They don't have to leave and they don't need me to allow them to. They just can. Most come and go over time. Uh, my new friend here in the Cremains, I've promised to keep for at least two years until their uh, their child comes of age to collect them from me. But I hope in the meantime to, to give this person a little rehab so they're less of a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> and I sincerely hope that, that that person does learn in such a way that it will be, you know, a much more peaceful existence, I would assume. You take so much on yourself to, to, to upon yourself to do all this. Um, I have a friend of mine. They have um, they have a, a clinger on, for lack of a better term, a spirit or whatever. They are completely cool with it. They are they are friends with it. It's a member of their family. Um, I've been over their house, and many things have happened there. And for them, it's not a big deal. It's like the, a door will open or something will happen. It's never malicious. It's never hurtful. It's never harmful. And they're just, the whole family is just very cool with it. They're like, yeah, that's such and such. He's, you know, every time we move or whatever, we invite him to come along and, you know, et cetera and so on. Do you have anything like that, I I would assume? Oh, of course. Uh, We have all manner of entities coming and going. Uh, My children have gotten to where they they know most of them and... um, the, one of the children can see them like I do. The other one cannot, but they, they interact with them nonetheless. They're pretty used to having their great-grandparents around. That's that's fun. Um, we have um, an elderly gentleman who's a bit of a poltergeist, but he's just kind of a prankster. He likes it's, – it's the ghostly version of a dad joke for him to, like, put your, your wallet in the oven. That's, <laughs> that's just his thing. Um, 
he was a Jewish individual, so every holiday season um, he insists that I light a menorah, which I do despite, my, <laughs> despite myself. Well, that's sweet. That's cool. There's so nothing wrong with that. I mean, as long as you're getting along with these people, it's, that's that's only like, people in, in the in the ghost world. Like, they once somebody dies, they always like ghosts is something else, and I'm always like, it's a person. It's you know, I don't. I, for me, there's no differentiation if a person is alive or dead. It's still a person. And right. when you see like the ghost bros and all these shows interacting with this kind of stuff, as though it's a demonic, or, 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 or as soon as somebody dies, they become this evil thing. And I've never bought into that knowledge. I've never bought into that idea. It's like when a person dies, it's still the same person. So when you're talking to spirits or whatever you want to call it, you know, don't it, it's there's no there's no disconnection here. If a person was mean in life, then they're going to be that way in the afterlife because that's how that person is. If they were cool in life, they're probably going to be cool in the afterlife because they're still that same person. So speaking of which, do you have a favorite? A favorite of of the the eidolon on our property? Yeah, um, that's tough. That's a tough question. Um, oh, you wanted to say they're all listening loud, right, right now. Yeah. <laughs> they're all listening. They're like, yeah. "Who's the favorite? Who's the favorite?" <laughs> Mom likes me best. <laughs> Between my children, either, but uh, there are a few that that definitely uh, probably spend more time with me. There's a horse here that I literally have no idea what to do with ever. I can't get rid of this horse, so that's that's a whole thing. Um, this property used to be both a Civil War battlefield and a Revolutionary War battlefield. So there are quite a few soldiers. And oh, my horses. gosh, you put yourself into situations. Wow. <laughs> and I, my property also laps over with a cemetery. Wow. <laughs> of course wow. it does. I, I don't know how you do what you do. I don't know how – this has got to bring complications and problems in. Like – how how I, I don't know I don't even know what to say. This is crazy. <laughs> I think it's lovely. I it mean, it's cool, like... but it's a glutton for punishment. I mean, it's like how do you this this is then you've got your things in real life. You've got your family, your jobs. You know, you have real life struggles, and then on top of this, you've got these these extra life things that go on top of it. So well, I mean, you know, for those of you listening, I do all of these things for free. So if you want to support my like madness, I have a web store on my website and I'm, I'm pretending to have a staycation this week. So you can always like door dash me or, or, you know, PayPal donate if you want to buy me some takeout. That's, <laughs> that's I would love to send you like a coffee or something. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I PayPal.me slash Mortellus, or you can always like DoorDash to a crow in the dead at gmail.com. That's my, that's my thing. I'll always take some takeout, but yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of spirits here I work with. I, I love my horse. I love Benny. Um, I love, I, I love them all, even the jackasses. And they, they just, they are who they are and they're working their stuff out. Just, well, more power to you, kiddo. Um, I, I, what you do is really cool. I just admire your strength and the fact that you're willing to put yourself out there in life and after life. So, um, well, we've had you on here for quite a while. I didn't, I didn't want to have you on quite this long. Plus, I know you're incredibly tired and, and you've soldiered through this very well dealing with all of our questions and stuff. So uh, this is the part of the show that I always do for my guests where I allow them to put anything out there that they want to, their merchandise, their website, their appearances, anything they have coming up. Uh, feel free to talk about anything that you want to promote right now. Gosh, I'm really bad at this. So <laughs> for everyone listening, I am not good at like the used car salesperson routine. I just am terrible at it. Um, 
if you want to support, um, go to my website, martellus.com. I've recently launched some grief support forums there that are totally neutral, pagan-friendly space where you can talk about anything you need to talk about. Obviously, it's free. Just make an account so you can log in and you can talk about things and talk to other people. And it only survives if we all support it. So, So do that. If you've read my book and you liked it, go give me a review on Amazon or Goodreads because those help me so much in ways you can't imagine. Um, uh, again, my website at mortellus.com. I have a web store there with things that I make. Um, I make all kinds of interesting, responsibly sourced death goods. I, I'm a huge fan of making candles, which I've been doing a lot of, and I make wood wicks out of recycled caskets. So lots of fun, neat stuff. Um, and yeah, if you just, if you want to support, go, go like, follow, share, all that fun stuff. Hit those donate links. And yeah. I actually bought your book. Your publisher sent me a copy of your book because I didn't send another one and this one got sent with it with a couple other ones and immediately I jumped on this one and then I promptly contacted Shelly here and purchased her a copy of it to send out to her so she could have a copy of it as well to read. So if your publisher is listening out there, yes, sending out these books to me does it does the job that it's supposed to do and it does return sales. And I did I did I was very, very excited to get you on the show. Um there's a lot of questions that I want to ask you, but I don't want to keep you on here any longer because we've had you on for so long and picked your brain so much. Thank you very much for coming on here and talking to us about yes, this. Yes, thank you. I did not want to go into the back of the book, which is the actual customs and practices, because that is what the book is about. And even if you're somebody who's not into this kind of stuff, the first quarter, first half of the book is full of really cool information just in itself. So do go out and buy this because it is very educational. And as I said earlier, this is something that really needs to be out there. If you are a person who is a pagan or does follow an alternate belief system or a practice, this is something that you should have because if you pass away, you could go, listen, if something happens to me, what I want done is in this book or you can contact this person and they will guide you along as to where I need to be or what I want to happen to me. So do go out and buy this. And Mortellus, thank you very much for writing this and thank you very much for coming on the show and talking about this stuff with us. And and I would just add an addendum to that to say that if you can't afford the book or don't feel like it's for you, a great way to support those communities and a great way to support this work is to call your local head librarian and ask them to consider adding it to their collection, both physically and electronically. That makes sure it's available for everyone at no cost. That spreads the love to your community and, you know, helps me out too in the process. God, you're so selfless. I love that. <laughs> I don't don't oversell me. I'm pretty regular, but I, I appreciate your rounding up. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Of course. If you like motorcycles and you like comedy, perhaps you should try the Wheel Nerds podcast. Stop that. What, what are you doing? I'm doing my announcer voice. It's proven super effective. It's stupid. Nope. We're the Wheel Nerds. Shut up. Shut up. We're the Wheel Nerds. We're a weekly-ish comedy motorcycle podcast where we talk about everything two wheels and a bunch of stuff that isn't. 
Give us a listen at wheelnerds.com, iTunes, or Stitcher. Or wherever fine podcasts are sold. Ha ha ha! I stop doing Not this now, all vampires sparkle. Underwood and Flinch is a vampire novel by Mike Bennett. Get it now for free from iTunes, MikeBennettAuthor.com, UnderwoodandFlinch.com, and PodioBooks.com, or source it using the LibriVox app, amongst others. Underwood and Flinch by Mike Bennett. Putting the blood back in vampire fiction. And that will do it for this week's episode with Mortellus. Thank you again for coming on the show, Mortellus, especially with the lack of sleep and schedule that you were on. Um, I did tell them that if they wanted to reschedule that they could, but Mortellus was like, nah, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Let's let's just go and let's just run with this. Thank you again to Shelly for coming onto the show and doing a fantastic job of co-hosting, which she always does. Shelly never disappoints by coming on here and giving me a hand. Always has great questions. Always knows how to steer a conversation. I'm very at ease co-hosting with her, if you can't tell. Um, do check out Mortellus's website. They make these really cool candles that uh, have some really cool scents, and they are woodwick candles that are made from coffin wood. And there's a bunch of other really neat stuff on there. If you are a practicing pagan or somebody who is not of the Christian faith and is into, I guess I will use the word alternative religions, I guess. Oh, hopefully that doesn't offend anybody, because uh, we do have a lot of respect for people on here that are practicers of different faiths and things like that really buy this book i say that a lot about people that come on the show that are guests and stuff and i always tell people to buy the books that come on the show buy this book it's a great read it's very interesting if if you are into um funeral practices and just other traditions and um things like that or as i said if you are a practicing pagan and you want to have your wishes met uh, when your time comes and you move on from, as I said, this mortal coil, this is a great book to have. It's very educational. There's a lot of cool stuff in here. And hopefully at some point or another, I'll be able to have more tell us back on here again to delve a little bit more into their life and what led them to this point and just other topics. So um, having said all of that, again, this is Rojan from a rain deluged Michigan. If you live here, uh, buy a boat or learn to swim. We will see everybody again soon. I have other shows in the works. It's just a matter of me having the time to sit down and record them. Summer's here. COVID's pretty much over with if you're vaccinated. So I'm catching up on all of this stuff and going places and seeing friends and just doing things again, which is a little weird to get into after having a year of not doing anything. But um, it's just a matter of me sitting down recording stuff. Plus, I also have the other show with my friend John, which is Old Nerds Drinking, which is pretty much a nerd geek podcast. It is nothing like this show. I'm pretty much a clown on that show. And John runs that show. And it's a lot of fun. But I have to sit down and record a show with him eventually because... I haven't had any time for anything. So uh, I will see everybody again soon. This is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. Reminiscing on our indestructible days. The never seemed to end. We don't be punched the night away.
the night. 